I learned how to walk here, you know? I ate food from this land. Like, I swam in your oceans. I played in the desert. Everything about my life is associated with this land. And having no sense of permanence here really complicates that. And I sometimes wonder if, let's say, for some whatever reason, they grant me citizenship, would I be able to call this place home, you know? Is it just that? Or is it more than that? I don't know. I don't. Do you feel a sense of connection to Syria? Not at all. Like, not at all. Hey everyone, it's Hiba here. While we're busy working on our winter season, which is going to be epic, we wanted to share with you today an update on a story uh, that we produced a few years ago, actually, back in 2018. Um, it's till now a story I think about every time somebody says the word TCK or third culture kid. Um, if that doesn't mean anything, it will in a second. <laughs> and the story is called Where the Heart Is. Uh, it's about a man named Maysam Faraj and how his life has been shaped by where his passport says he's from, which is Syria. Uh, but Syria is not a place he really has a connection to. He grew up his whole life in the UAE. Um, so it's a story about identity, about love, about family, and it's one of our all-time favorites. Um, we've polished it up a little and uh, last week actually called Maysam to ask him where he is in life now. Um, so you'll hear an update at the end of the episode uh, too. Um, but first, the full story. It comes to us from producer Alex Atak. So our story today is about my friend Maysam. My name is Maysam Faraj, a Syrian born and raised in the UAE. He works as a video producer. And also a skateboarder. Hi, my name is Maysam Faraj. I'm going to show you guys how to trick. This is Maysam in an old skating video from the 2000s. Um, I basically grew up on these videos, went down a total nostalgic rabbit hole re-watching them while I was making this episode. Okay, so first of all, if you want a tray flip, you're going to have to be able to at least pop shove it and kick flip well. Anyway, just to explain to you quickly how I know Maysam, we were both brought up in Dubai at the same time uh, and we know each other because we were both skateboarders. It was like the thing that I did uh, at the weekends with my friends, like any time I wasn't at school, uh, pretty much I was skateboarding. Uh, but there was me and my friends and then there was this older group uh, and Maysam was part of this older group of kids who were always at the skate park as well. And uh, you know, you know how it is at that age, like they were older and therefore cooler and so... Growing up, I never really spoke to Maysam. He's probably, uh, he's probably like eight years older than me. But then as we got older and like the age gap started to become less of a thing, um, I became friends with him. But I left Dubai when I was 13, so 2006, and, and I would probably go back like once a year to visit friends and that kind of thing. Um, and slowly like friends would start to leave and, you know, families would move back to their home country or to somewhere else. But the thing that I always remember about Maysam is that he was just always around. He's lived there non-stop since he was born, so, you know, when we started making this episode about people who were brought up in Dubai but aren't from there, Maysan was kind of like one of the first people that I wanted to speak to. Um, and that's kind of how we started this episode. We started it with this idea to look at this phrase, uh, quote-unquote, third culture kids. It's kind of a dated phrase at this point. And I mean, if you've ever lived in Dubai or Singapore or kind of any city like that, uh, where there's like a large population of migrants... Um, You'll probably heard this phrase, but if you if you haven't, it's basically like this kind of catch-all label that defines anyone that was raised outside of their parents' country of origin. And so when I started speaking to people about this, one thing uh, that would 
like one thing that kept coming up was this question of where do I call home? I would speak to people who had moved to Dubai in their 20s and people who were raised there from when they were born uh, and people who'd never been back to their home country. And they kind of had this real question of like, well, how can I call my home country home uh, when I've never lived there? But then I also can't call the UAE home because I'm never going to be a citizen there. I basically have the same rights as someone who landed here yesterday. And then I started talking to Maysam, uh, and I kind of realized that for him, this question of home carries so much more weight than that. His parents are originally from Syria, uh, a country that he's hardly visited. He went there once when he was a kid. And he says that he feels basically no connection to it. And, you know, he couldn't safely repatriate there now, even if he wanted to. His Syrian passport has kind of affected almost every aspect of his life, from his friendships to his work and, you know, his education opportunities. And somewhere down the line, it'll affect his retirement. But we're going to talk about all that later. For now, I just want to take you to the first time that I interviewed Maysam. Uh, I showed up at his house kind of late one evening. We'd both just finished work for the day. Uh, he poured us both a pot of black coffee and we sat down at his kitchen table. And after a little catching up, I brought out my mic. Yeah, so, um, yeah, I was born here, man. And then I've been stuck here ever since. My parents moved out here from Syria. Um, they eloped, actually. Both of my parents were artists. And, um, yeah, they just didn't, they didn't mesh well with that society. I think after they were done with university, my dad was like, all right, it, let's, um, let's get out of here and um, let's seek a new opportunity. And the reasons for choosing the UAE was, I think, it was, it was just a general thing of like a lot of their friends were looking for opportunities and a lot of them ended up in Dubai because at the time there was a lot of hype around this new city that's growing really fast. And it's an Arabic country and it's really close by and it's not Europe. You don't have to learn another language and stuff. So they moved out here and uh, gave it a shot. So his parents moved out to Dubai in the late 80s, uh, and for a while it was good. But as companies started bringing in more people from all over the world, um, Maysam said that his parents just couldn't compete in the job market anymore. His mum spoke very little English at the time and worked as a receptionist while his dad worked at the newspaper Al Bayan. But at some point when Maysam was two, his parents broke up, and his mum began raising him and his brother as a single parent. I just have to think back to being in high school, you know, so like I wasn't in a fancy school or anything. I was in a, you know, humble school, but like it was pretty much like every every couple of months, like I'd get pulled out of class because of failure to pay school fees or something like that. You know what I mean? Or I'd be the guy who gets the envelope in class like, hey, Sam, here's the envelope. Like, tell your dad to pay. I remember living, I think up until I was five or six and uh in a six-story building in Sharjah. So Sharjah is a neighboring state to Dubai. Between the ages of like four and seven, my memories are mostly Arab expats, you know, and they were from all over. You know, they were from Syria, Lebanon, Palestine. Um, like I hung out with Armenians, Indians, Emiratis, Yemenis, like everyone spoke Arabic and we all spoke this thing that we called Arabito, which was like a mix of all the different Arabic so we could all communicate with each other. So it was like a street slang. Back then, it was Jamera. Jamera was like Diafa Street. And Diafa Street used to be like the place that was happening. You know what I mean? That's where, that's like where all the parents would go on the weekend. You know what I mean? To go get a coffee at Cafe de Paris or whatever it was, you know? Um, 
there was a Hardee's there, and that's where like a lot of initiations went down to gangs. Like, you know, you would get jumped behind Hardee's, or like you'd have to fight someone behind Hardee's <laughs> on the other street. <laughs> yeah. I remember one time, me and my friends, we really didn't want to be at school, and we used to walk to school. Um, we're like, really don't want to go to school today. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys too. Yeah, cool. Let's set the bin outside on fire and then go home. You know, we'd set the bin on fire and just be like, all right, cool. So school's closed today. We just go home. I would go knock on the doors during Eid, you know, and ask for a Eid gift, which was money, you know, like five dirhams. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'd walk for 30 minutes through the desert and then I need water and the gate was open and Maradi's gate was open and you go up to the door and you knock and the door was always ajar and then you just yell like, can I get some water? And then, you know, they'd hook you up with some water, like a little plastic thing of water and maybe a date because it was still there. That was still part of their culture and it was still like totally cool for them to do that. So I've really experienced that and that's gone. But at a core level, that stuff is still there. To navigate the city now, I need a map. I, I don't know anything anymore. The roads change so much, like so many developments pop up. And, um, you know, you don't visit a particular area and then all of a sudden that whole roundabout or that whole intersection or something is gone. And now you're lost on a road that you have gone down for 20 years. You know what I mean? And I feel like a foreigner in the closest thing to home. I mean, that just that just showcases like how fast the city develops and how much stuff happens. And, you know, you don't have to you don't really have to look at all that stuff. You just need to look at what's gone from your childhood. It's not a sentimental city. It can't be. It's so young. It has to grow. And, you know, it's a city that unfortunately is transient for a lot of people. So it can't afford to be sentimental. Outside of school, there was skateboarding for me, and that was predominantly a Western crew. That's where I felt like I struggled, you know, because I was still learning English at the time. Um, the majority of them went to British schools, and they were Brits, or they were dual citizenship holders. Oh, people would grill me on my accent, you know? It still happens to this day. Like, every time I go somewhere else, they're like, they'll yell at me like, Oh, America! I'm like, I'm not American. They're like, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, their mind's blown. I'm like, I just learned English this way, you know? Where are you from? Syria. My mom, I think, um, I think she probably tried to do the best that she could to kind of instill a sense of identity, like a Syrian identity in us, you know what I mean? But at the same time, like, she was a lady that, like, I guess she, she felt like a single parent, even though there was a dad around, you know what I mean? She would talk about Syria and that kind of stuff. We'd listen to Feyruz every single morning from like when I was five till 18, every single morning Feyruz was on. Personally, I have no connection to Syria, but I know how much my mom loved Syria for particular reasons and why she still goes back. And at a certain point, at a certain age, when, I was, when I'm older, smarter, you know, um, I started I started realizing how important it was for for me to know where my mom came from. You know, to to feel connected to what she was once connected to, and what she still feels connected to. So, I 
I wanted to fill in those blanks, you know what I mean? Like, I know she had a shop at a souk. Well, what does that souk smell like? What does it sound like? What does it look like? You know, I wanted to feel all of that stuff. And I wanted her to kind of take me on this journey too. Like, this is where it was. It was right here. It was bigger, it was smaller than this, whatever. I've already missed the chance of witnessing Syria, you know, in, its, in all of its glory um, because of the war. But I still feel like I still might have a chance to have my mom walk me through some of these things just to kind of, you know, have the full picture of my mom. So Maysam is Syrian by passport, but only really by passport. Culturally, he's had this mixed upbringing in the UAE, which uh, at the end of the day is a country that he doesn't have any kind of lasting claim to. But while he was a teenager, that didn't really affect his life in any kind of concrete way. But then when he was 19, he met this girl online. So we met on a basically a MySpace for skateboarding called Ice Lounge. They built this uh, MySpace for skateboarders and it was awesome, you know, and it was for skateboarders or anyone who was really into skateboarding. What year is this? Ah, man. <laughs> okay, when did I start talking to this girl? I don't know, dude. This is where you can interject and put your voice in there <laughs> saying, we looked it up, it says this. <laughs> we did look it up. Uh, the website doesn't exist anymore. It's just a placeholder page. But the earliest mention I could find of it elsewhere was in 2005. So yeah, we met on this forum and it was a, it was a very simple exchange of like, hey, I like your videos. It was from her. And I'm like, thanks, I like yours too. Because she was also a skateboard videographer. She was based in uh, San Antonio, Texas. If it was very like, tell me about what skating is like in San Antonio, you know? How old was she? You know, what's she into? What kind of music? Oh, you're into Modest Mouse? I'm into Modest Mouse, you know? Have you heard of Built to Spill? No, you'd love them. I love Built to Spill. Took the conversation to MSN, you know? Um, we discovered that MSN now supports webcams. Were you nervous when you first... Dude, you have no idea. So nervous. It was like, what's the angle that I'm going to present myself at as the first time? You know, like I <laughs> like I wrecked the location, you know, I turned the camera on, I found the angle, cool, great. What's in frame? What does everything look like? You know what I mean? It's nerve wracking. Now here's the kicker. You have the video cameras, you have the webcams, but you can't talk. You still have to type. That alone in itself is just kind of romantic, you know what I mean? You can't be there. Like, you can't have that face-to-face -face interaction, you can't have that real-time interaction, but you're doing what you can. And it worked, you know? We built a relationship, you know, as kids. So at this point in our story, Maysam's uh, 19 years old, and, uh, you know, they kept talking for a few months, and then just things kind of fizzled out, as they tend to do at that age. And then eventually they just lost contact altogether. So uh, jumping forward four years to uh, around 2009, Maysam found himself in Afghanistan working with this skateboarding NGO called Skaterstan. Um, and so he's in Kabul, uh, kind of having a rough time and struggling to sleep at night. He's lying awake in bed. It's around 4 a.m. And uh, that's when she messaged me. Um, and then we started talking again. Now... What did she say when you first messaged dude, her? Dude, I don't remember, but I could, you know, I could probably find that on Facebook. Yes! Can you? <laughs> Let's do it. Okay, so this is July 28th, 2009. 4.25 um, a.m. Dubai time. So she says, I really want to know how you are doing. We haven't talked in so long, 
and I'm glad I saw you on here. I hope we can talk. And then a day later, I reply, hey, that's exactly why I haven't written back yet. I'm really busy, and I don't, I don't want small talk. I uh, want to write you a proper message. Get back to you when I get a chance. It's amazing that you found me on here. Trust me, I looked a couple of times. And yeah, then we picked up a conversation on Skype, and we started having, you know, full HD, real-time conversations, and caught up, and where things changed was when she told me that she quit her job because she was going to go work on a film set in India. It's always been her dream to get into cinema and work on movies, and she found this opportunity, so she's going to go for it. And I'm like, hey, why don't you stop in Dubai? You know, uh, find a connecting flight or something like that. Spend a day or two out here in Dubai. She let me know she's coming. I'm coming to Dubai. That was like a holy shit moment. So the plan was she flies into Dubai. She crashes at mine for two, three days, and then she goes, she makes her way over to India. Still taking things very cautiously. Um, still super friendly, still good intentions, nothing devious here. You know what I mean? There wasn't any ulterior motives at all. I parked the car, um, made my way into the airport. I waited out there, spotted her, I waved, um, gave her a big fat hug, and I remember, I remember just tripping out, like, but like in a good way, it was like, holy this is real. Like, you're here. Oh my God, you're tiny. You know what I mean? Um, gave her a big fat hug. She had a huge suitcase because she was going to be in India for like several months. You know, walked her over to the car and yeah, put her suitcase in the trunk and then started driving home. And, you know, it was like the weirdest conversation in the car. It was like, you know, sentences like, how crazy, this is like real time now, you know? Or, so this is Dubai, you know? <laughs> like just the worst, worst conversation ever. And I was living with my mom at the time, right? So I walked into the apartment. I think my mom was asleep because it was pretty late. Me we were way into the bedroom and I just have this one room. So I have that loft bed and I have like a sofa bed. So I was planning on sleeping on the loft bed and she was sleeping on the sofa bed, like all cool. And then I remember we were sitting on the on the sofa bed just like chatting for a while and then we were both pretty tired like it's late for me and she just got off of like 55 hour flight or whatever um and I remember laying down and I, I don't know I think she like tapped me on the head or something like that and I turned over and then she kissed me and um yeah we just like we made out for a while and like, I think just fell asleep in each other's arms. I don't know, for all I know, we could not kiss tomorrow, whatever. Like this is that moment, it's a beautiful moment and it is what it is. And you know, in a couple of days she'll be going to India. And then she never did. The film she was gonna make in India uh, lost its funding. And so she ended up staying in Dubai for a few more years and her and Mason's relationship became more serious. Um, and as it became more serious, they started thinking, about places where they could go to begin their life together. I remember by this point, the conflict in Syria had broken out, so moving there just wasn't going to be an option. So we came up with this plan of like, all right, let's move to the US, you know, put in a couple of years there, and then work towards getting my citizenship, and then the world's our oyster from there. So that was kind of the reason why we decided to get married, you know. Um, yeah, there was a lot of love and... Like, it was a real deal relationship, you know what I mean? So that's why I was totally okay with it. And she came here in 2011? Nice. How long, when did you guys get married after Dude, she my, came here? 
So as we were talking to Mason about his wedding, uh, he was kind of struggling to remember dates. And so the way he remembered was he brought out this skateboard, which his mum had bought for him at his wedding. Uh, everyone, all of his friends had signed it and they'd written kind of all the major milestones of their relationship on this board. All right. So I'm holding this frame that's from, it's a gift from our mom that we got on our wedding day. And it highlights like the dates, the important dates. So we first fell in love in 2005 and met for the first time in 2009. Asked her to marry me in 2012 and she said yes in also 2012. Once they married, they could apply for a spousal visa and begin the process of emigrating to the US. And to get that visa, one of the first steps was an interview in Abu Dhabi. I remember being super nervous about like being punctual because it was in Abu Dhabi. So I made a decision to go out to Abu Dhabi and stay at a hotel right next to the embassy. And that way, like, there's no, there's no way that anything can go wrong. I remember we went in my car, went in, did my appointment, and the dude just had, like, just the worst attitude. Like, just, you know, zero humanity, not looking me in the eye at all. I could not make eye contact with the dude. He looked at my paperwork. He asked me some really generic questions. Nothing like the movies where, you know, like, she allergic to anything or whatever, you know? So it wasn't any of that stuff. It was just really random things like, where does her mom work? I'm like, well, her mom works at this place. And he's like, what's the address? I'm like, dude, I don't know. I've never been to the U.S. How am I supposed to know that? And, you know, you feel like you're messing it all up. I'm waiting to see what he's going to hand me, what kind of paper. And he's like, here you go. And I'm like, is this a rejection? He's like, no. I'm like, is it an approval? He's like, no. I'm like, so what else is there? He's like, you've been put on administrative processing. And I left that room and didn't hear back from him till two years later. They left the embassy that day, not knowing how long Maysan would be on administrative processing, which as far as we can tell, is kind of like a black hole within the US application system. It basically means that your application is pending and you can be on it for any amount of time from like a month to just indefinitely. So knowing this, they made the decision that she would move back to the US ahead of him and continue studying while Maysan waited in the UAE for his visa to process. And as soon as it did, he'd fly out and join her. And yeah, dude, we were just doing this long distance Skype thing, you know, Skype dates, Skype movie dates, just had a virtual relationship. You know, we tried our best to have visits, you know, like have her kind of come back out here. But like, again, really tricky because it's the US and it's pretty expensive. Anyways, man. So, dude, I think no matter how solid your relationship is, like that much time apart is going to start affecting it and um slowly but surely like the relationship deteriorated you know what i mean like there was still a lot of love and there was still all that kind of stuff but like things get confusing and you know um yeah dude like it becomes like are you real like what's it i forgot like what she kind of looked like in person you know what i mean like seeing someone through a box like I remember like we organized one visit when she came out and I remember seeing her at the airport. I'm like, dude, I forgot how tiny she is. Like, you forget like what details look like on someone's hand, how it feels to hold that person's hand, you know what I mean? There was a lot of tension um, within the relationship. A lot of it was, I think resentment towards each other from both sides. Um, I resented the fact that I worked so hard to support both of us at a young age when I was just trying to get my, my own together. 
but then re realized at the same time that she resented me. You know, she resented the fact that uh, this was my home. And she resented the fact that she felt like she had spent so many years away from the States to be here with me. It was clear like it wasn't gonna work the same way it was before. And um, at some point I was just like, dude, what am I doing? What are we doing? I gotta, I gotta end this thing. I can't, you know? Um, and then I did. I Skyped with her and I put on my bravest face and uh, went against every, I don't know, it's funny. It's funny, like having a conversation like that because you know what you want. But then when you start saying these things, everything in your body is telling you, kind of like, no, like, don't. Do you really want to do this? Because now you're just like cutting all of these ties. You're cutting all of this history. You're cutting all of these memories, and you're reducing them now to a an ex relationship. And this person is no longer numero uno. Um, what had worked and made sense when they both lived in the same place just didn't translate to a long-distance relationship. But remember, U.S. immigration didn't know that, and so on paper, May Sam's green card was still pending. I was... I remember I was sitting in my car. This is about a week after they decided to break up. And, um, you know, before, coming at, before getting out of the car and going to the skate park, I glanced at my phone real quick and saw there was an email. I was like, oh, the email was from his lawyer and he was getting in touch to tell him basically that his green card was ready. In fact, it had been ready for years. Um, it had been sitting in someone's filing cabinet in an office somewhere. And for whatever reason, they just hadn't let him know. And so um, in short, he could have moved to the US to join his wife two years earlier. And I was like, all right, you obviously read this wrong. Like read it again. And I read it again. And then I was just like, just deflated you know and I was like are you kidding me so I called her up and she's like does it mean what I think it means and I'm like yeah she's like holy and I'm like yeah she's like what do you want to do I'm like nothing you know she's like look I mean we can still you know we could still give this a shot and you could still come out here and you know try and make this life and I'm like dude I'm not gonna live this facade like no so why didn't you just take the opportunity when you had it? Even if it came about in a really way. Yeah. Um, I don't know, dude. I mean, look, so it's like a fight or flight kind of thing. It's just like this telling me, like, do not do it. Do not go there. Do not do this thing. I feel like the U.S. me before I've even gotten there. Whatever passport or nationality I'm going to work towards, I want to feel proud of being from that country. So he stayed. He stayed in Dubai where his future was a little less certain, but at least it was a place that he was familiar with, where his friends were and where his work and really his entire life was. But as he said earlier in the story, Dubai is kind of a transient, unsentimental city. And um, all of that became very real for him when his mum started to approach retirement age. So can we talk briefly about your mum? Yeah, she actually just got her visa renewed. Oh, she did? Yeah, she called me to tell me that she got her visa renewed to work for another year. So I was just like, like that's a <laughs> that's a cause of celebration. So we talked about May Sam's mum briefly at the top of the episode. She moved uh, to Dubai from Damascus in her early twenties. Uh, this was in the nineteen eighties when no one really knew what Dubai was going to be. 
Um, and she's been there ever since. But in the UAE, if you're not of UAE nationality, you need a visa to live and work in the country. Uh, and these visas are typically provided by the company that you're working for. So when you get to a retirement age of around 60 and you can't work anymore, it becomes more difficult to find someone to basically sponsor you with a visa. For a lot of people, that's kind of when they leave the country. Uh, they generally go back home or they'll move somewhere else. But if Syria is the only place that you have a passport for, moving back there just isn't a safe option. I don't think my mom, I don't think people think like that. And my mom never really grew up like that. And she's always had this foundation or this base of Syria, this thing to go back to. And she left it at some point, but it's always been there for her. The only thing that changed over time is the war. You know, I know I'm kind of following the same footsteps in some way as what I said about my mom, maybe not choosing a different place in the world to reside and build a foundation and a home and whatever. Um, I'm aware of these things. I think that's the difference. I'm aware that I have to get out at some point. I don't think she was ever aware that this is not going to be, the, the UAE is not going to be my home forever. But I understand because she's, um, you know, she's getting, she's getting close to the age now where it's going to be really hard for her to renew her visa, you know? So she's going to have to move back to Syria at some point. So what, what's she going to do back there? My mom's parents were getting old. And, um, you know, it's those last couple of years, like, where you're kind of nervous about how long they're going to be around. So at some point where, you know, when things seemed pretty chill in Damascus for a year, she made the call to go out there and visit her parents. So I was supposed to pick her up from the airport. And I think the day before she told me that her friends are going to pick her up from the airport. And I live like 10 minutes away from the airport. And I was like, okay, this is shady. Like something's up, but whatever. So she lands, you know, I speak to her on the phone. She sounds fine. She's like, uh, come over. You know, I'm like, yeah, I'm coming over now. I walk, walk over to her house and walk into her room. And, you know, there's my mom sitting on the couch. Um, she's, you know, five meters away from me. So I can't really see details, but I see that something's off. And as I start walking out a little closer, I pass through the corridor and then all of her friends are visible to me now. And I'm looking at her at her friends, you know, because um, all of a sudden I was like, oh, there's like five people here, <laughs> you know? So I glance at them. I see everyone looking at me like in anticipation of something. I'm like, what the f is going on? And then I glance back to my mom and then I see that like, she's got cuts all over and like, you know, like some gnarly stuff. And I see that there's this thick bandaid on her neck um, that's kind of bloody. She's like, hi, Sam. I had an adventure like you in Afghanistan. And I'm like, what happened? Just, I just, it just kicked into the point where I was like, there's zero fucking emotion. Like, I'm like, what's going on? What happened? She bought a flight from an airline uh, who would not sell her a return flight. So she bought a one way. For whatever reason, they had this system at the moment where they're like, well, we can't because it's Syria. You're going to have to buy the second half of your ticket from our office in Syria. So she went out there, she visited her family, you know, she was out there for a few days and, um, you know, she had a free day and she's like, all right, I'm going to go down and buy my return ticket. 
and she's walking down the street, you know, in a very secure area because it's a governmental district. She's walking over to the uh, airline office and, you know, there's military and barriers and all that kind of checkpoints and all that stuff. And she just got unlucky and a fucking mortar landed next to her. A lot of people up, killed a lot of people. She got pumped full of shrapnel. She didn't know what happened. She saw the flash. Well, and then you've got this guy over there with half his head taken off, you know, and like chaos. And you can't call anyone because there's too much blood on your hands. You can't use your phone. Like the touchscreen isn't working. A lot of the men out there kind of handled the situation. So they did whatever they could to help whoever, you know. Um, and the ambulances came pretty quickly and uh, rushed everyone off to the hospital. She was in the hospital for eight days, undergoing a bunch of surgeries to try and take as much of the shrapnel out as possible. So now she beeps when she goes through metal detectors. <laughs> but uh, yeah, she's okay. She's a tough cookie. You know, so that that's also been like a kind of kind of like a reminder like, hey dude, you could have done something. You know, you could have gone to the US and you could have maybe been in a better situation to help your family out, but at the same time, like there's no guarantee. I mean, if I could do whatever I wanted, then I'd you know, buy my mom a place somewhere that's beautiful and nice and where the people are friendly and laid back and throw her over there and just tell her go enjoy the rest of your years, you know? And I don't think that she wants to be anywhere else besides Syria right now. And I don't know why. But I understand it. She's old. She wants to go to what's familiar. She doesn't want to try a new country with new cultures and all this kind of stuff at this point of her life. But as long as Damascus is relatively safe and the situation in Syria, you know, still shit going on. But it's a lot calmer than it was a year and a half ago. As long as she feels like there's still a possibility for, for her to live out there, she's going to go there. So um, the overarching theme of this episode, uh, the kind of reason that we started looking into like people who were brought up in Dubai uh, in the first place was sprung from this idea of like looking at what it means, what it is to be a quote-unquote third culture kid. Um and so at the end of one of our interviews with Naysam, we asked him, like, what do you what do you make of this phrase? Like, is this a label that you put onto yourself? Uh, and secondly, like, where do you where do you call home? How am I a third culture kid in this situation? I don't like the term. Why? I don't know. What does it mean? I dislike the label because I don't feel like even within that label, I don't really feel like I fit in with it. I think the reason the term gets thrown around so much is because it's made popular, you know, by Western cultures, you know, you'll have like kids jumping on a BuzzFeed video and be like, yeah, I'm a third culture kid and look at the cool things about it. And I'm just like, no, dude, it's only cool because now you've got the citizenship that you're, you're, you're set up, you're all right, you've got this freedom. And a lot of us don't, and we don't want to identify with that. I would rather just be like, I'm from here, the end. You know, I don't think it's maybe because I grew up with it, but I don't think it's something that that's amazing. That's like, oh, yeah, I feel like I'm from Dubai, but I'm actually Syrian and my parents moved out here. I'm, I don't want to complicate it. You know, dude, it's it's kind of crazy if you think about it. 
so like what what like 25 year old thinks i need to buy gold and i'm not talking like bling or whatever it's just like i need to buy gold i need to have gold for emergencies or i need to have this much cash ready to go i need to split all of my savings into different bank accounts because the next economic crisis that happens here i don't want to be beyond the limit that i can pull out so i can get up and go i think about these things you know i'm this is what i this is how i live now you know um why because i'm not i don't feel safe i don't feel secure i don't feel like i have a home anywhere so i've got to be ready for that time when it comes not in like a super extreme way but at least in the basic ways you know i know countries i off the top of my head i know countries that i could fly to right now where i could enter without any issues and reside for a little while like worst comes to worst i can go to georgia right now and be there for a year um and i can afford to live there for a while and it'll be no questions asked go do your thing i know these things where is home for you oh god <laughs> <laughs> I have no home. I home is a culmination of many places for me. It's not something I've I've been able to crack. Um I don't feel like I've done enough in my life or have made enough changes in my life to kind of be at a level where I can confidently answer that. I haven't lived somewhere else. So I don't know what that experience is like. I don't know if at that time if I do move somewhere else I'll understand what home is, but every country I go to captures a little part of me and uh you know, my home is uh nowhere and everywhere. <laughs> It's nowhere and everywhere and at some point I have to make one of those places you know home. So that's where we left off from our original episode which aired in 2018. And last week I got on a call with Maysam to catch up with what's been happening with him since. Uh, I think like for many people it's been uh an uncertain year, uh, a year with a lot of changes. But we started the conversation talking about his mom. Yeah, so one thing that's changed for sure since then is I think now my mom's retired in Syria. Oh, whoa, okay. Yeah, so she's no longer living in the UAE. Um she moved back to Damascus? Yeah, so she, you know, just passed 60. Um and you know how it gets a little trickier the older you get here like once you pass 60 it's it gets harder to renew your visa um so she did get her visa renewed at the age of 61 or something we celebrated that and then um i think just at that age and all that stress of like independence in this country being so tied to your visa and your employment it was just enough for her so the right call was for her to go back and just kind of yeah live it out there basically which is definitely difficult it's not the ideal situation because you know she's she was going into a war somewhat 
war-torn country. Um, obviously, having been a victim as, of um, the consequences of war herself from that um, accident out there, and being separated from her kids, her support system, her grandkids. Um, it's something of an adjustment for all of us, but everyone's doing fine, you know? How is it for you? Because you, you, you're pretty close to your mom. You used to live, like, right opposite each other, right? Yeah, um, we were neighbors. See her balcony from mine. Yeah. Um, yeah, to be honest, man, like, it's it's just been, it's been a transition. You know, we we do the best we can with, like, trying to stay in touch with each other over uh, Zoom calls and stuff like that. Um, yeah. But, you know, there's limitations as well there with electricity and internet um, so it doesn't always work out or pan out. So, you know, just having that friction there is a bit annoying. Mm -hmm. So in February, right before the pandemic hit, uh, Maysan was made redundant from his job. And at first he told me it was difficult. But I think like many people, um, it sort of helped him realign with the things that he's more passionate about. So now I'm in a good place. <laughs> um, for a little while, it was touch and go there. Um, not to sound too dramatic, but um, I've never I've never been made redundant before, let alone during, you know, a world pandemic and an economy teetering on recession. You know, um, but all those things hitting at the same time was rough. Like it was a severe knock to my confidence. Um, but I've realized that. Um, this is this is an opportunity to try and get back to what I want to do, you know, and mm -hmm. what that was took a while to figure out. So I kept myself occupied with projects that I've always wanted to get into and never did, you know. So I'm freelancing mm -hmm. back back to my core skills of just like videography and um, storytelling through video. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm also trying to start a skate shop with my with my girlfriend. Um, so for the longest time, like, I've always kind of dreamed about having a skate shop um, simply because I feel like, you know, when we were kids, we got a taste of what everyone else around the world experiences and mm. having, like, an, an institution, yeah, 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 a skate store where people can come and hang and, yeah. and just a place where, like, if people come and visit or people look up skateboarding, like, this place could be their point of contact, you know, and... Mm -hmm and take care of them and I don't know, just like do good for the community in the UAE and out. Mm -hmm. I feel like, I feel like skateboarding is just one of those things now for a lot of these kids, like their focus is on, you know, video games and, um, I don't know, malls, whatever it is. Um, and skateboarding has just become like a, a side hobby, mm. um, which is totally fine. But also at the same time, like I know what they are potentially missing out on from gaining from skateboarding for life, right? So having a skate shop, I feel like I might be able to help create better experiences for these kids that would make them fall in love with skateboarding more or take it seriously more. To really convert those kids to becoming loyal skateboarders. So yeah, a lot of ideas, dude, that I think are really fun. How do you feel... Uh like about living in the UAE now I mean when we did the the episode there was we spoke a lot about like there were a few times you were talking about leaving 
yeah. how how are you feeling in terms like about living in the UAE? Are you are you are you kind of settled now? Are you feeling like you're trying to you you want to leave? It's a good question. Um, I think I think it's a tough pill to swallow, but I've definitely set myself up to be a little more settled here now. Um, so I think at this age in our lives, um, we decided like, okay, while we're here, let's try and live as comfortably as possible. But um, it's always going to be a worry and it's always going to be a struggle. At least I don't, see, I don't see how it can't be with my nationality for the next decade or so. Mm-hmm. But fuck, man, we have to try and live our lives somehow, you know? Imagine your life to be permanent. Change your outlook to 15, 20 years down the line. Have that vision versus think three years ahead, think two years ahead, think at most five years ahead, you know? I mean, your listeners are going to have a whole bunch of different opinions on this. I've heard some of those too. (laughs) Um, But this is only my life I'm talking about here. All right, man. All right, well, dude. have a good day. Yeah, you too, um, man. And we'll we'll speak soon. Hopefully, see each other soon. I'll say what up on your behalf on the skate session today. Yeah, please do. All right, my G. All right, be man. well. Be safe. Have a good one. Live long and prosper. <laughs> see you later. <laughs> later. This episode was produced by Alex Atak and myself, Hibba Fisher, with editorial support from Persia Verlin, Laura Saab, Rizana Zayani, and Jackie Sophia. Sound design by Alex Atak and Fadi Geras. And a big thank you to Mason Faraj for sharing his story uh, twice <laughs> with us. Um, we uh, we actually spoke with him over the course of like <laughs> three days, I think, for this story. Uh, and he really opened up his home and his world to us. Thank you, Maisam. Please keep subscribed to this feed uh, as we'll continue to share special episodes like this until we kick off the next season. Um, if you're new to Kerning Cultures, we hope you enjoy the uh, library of episodes that, that go all the way back to 2015. And if you like these stories, do tell your friends uh, about Kerning Cultures and encourage them to listen and subscribe. It would mean the world to us. Thanks for listening. Until next time. <laughs>